A little disclaimer about today's podcast. We experienced some technical difficulties that compromised our sound just a bit. But Stephen Tobolowski is truly one of the best guests we've ever had. So I hope you'll forgive the sound and bask in the glow of his brilliance. Thank you and enjoy. Welcome to another edition of Father Time. I'm pretty excited about today. Um, uh, I met this gentleman a couple weeks ago. We did a play reading. Um, you will know him from only 254 different credits on IMDb, which, by the way, is the most I've ever seen any human have. It's pretty amazing. Uh, you'll know him as a needle-nosed Ned Ryerson from Groundhog Day. People know him from Memento, Silicon Valley, but lately you've been on the Goldbergs. Uh, you're doing One Day at a Time. You have a new book out, My Adventures in God, which is Simon Schuster, just got uh, released a couple months ago. Um, and, of course, your own famous podcast, The Tobolowski Files. My guest today, Mr. Stephen Tobolowski. Yay. I'm pretty Welcome. excited. Oh, I'm, I'm excited. We went to the play reading, and, um, you know, nobody was talking. But, and finally, I was the dick at dinner who was like, dude, seriously, I need some, I need some Groundhog Day stories. <laughs> and here's, the, here's what I love about you. Like, you can play anything because you'll do the crazy guy in Groundhog Day, but then you'll be the, the leader of the KKK in Mississippi Burning. Man's got to do what a man's, man's got to do. do. It's a fine line between drama and comedy, but, the, you know, a bunch of guys cross it, and it's, it's pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. You don't really fit into any file except for Gettys Tobolowski. For this part, yeah. Before I, I did Groundhog Day, I mean, that was the big turning point for me. Before then, I was just like the bald guy with glasses, and after Groundhog Day, I was the bald guy with glasses who was in Groundhog Day. So people would say, <laughs> "Get me the bald guy with glasses who was in Groundhog." They didn't even know Day. your name. No, yeah, no, it's too too long, too complicated. I remember when I first came to Los Angeles. I was trying to get an agent. I mean, did you have that problem when you came? Of course. Everybody has. I still have that problem sometimes. <laughs> Who knows? That's how it comes and goes. Hell of a problem. I'll I, be there for a cup I, of coffee. I went to an agent. Carol Farrell was her name. And I thought, well, man, it sounds like a real agent because her name rhymes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Carol Farrell. And she said, like, well, I can't get you a job with a name like Stephen Tobolowsky. No one is going to hire Stephen Tobolowsky. And I said, well, who would they hire? And she said, they would hire Stephen Adams. I said they would hire Stephen Adams, but they wouldn't hire Stephen Adams. I said, I'll tell you what, Carol, Farrell, why don't you tell people you represent Stephen Adams? And if I get the job, I will change my name to Stephen Adams. And uh, I even made up a, uh, what do you call it, a composite, we used to call it back in those days, where you had your 8x10 on one side and various sure. photos on yeah, the yeah. back to show you. I'm a butcher. I'm, I'm jumping a fence. Here I am. <laughs> Ice cream. Yeah, I can do it. If you need me to eat ice cream, I know how to do it. Here I am. This uh, and and I made this up. In fact, I probably should sell this on eBay. The the uh, Stephen Adams composite. I think it would probably fetch a good penny. And she, of course, could not get me a job as Stephen Adams, but she did call to try to get me work. And she brought me in and said, "Stephen, how tall are you?" And I said, "Well, Carol, I'm six three. And she says. Can you be six six? <laughs> and I said, well, in three inch heels, <laughs> yes. I could be six six. Simple math. Cthorni, you know, if you give me Cthorni, I could be six six. <laughs> and she says, well, they're looking for a basketball player that's six six. I'm like, Carol, I'm six three. You know, that's that's the way we do that unless they lower the basket. This was the this was my first experience. Of course. In in uh, Hollywood. How old were you, Steve? Boy, when I came out here. I guess I was, I want to say, 20, let's see, I was born in 51, and I came out here in 76. So does that make me 25, 26? 20, yeah. 25. Yeah, yeah, So something like that, yeah, mid-20s. Well, this is a good segue, because the premise of this show is that we talk about you being raised um, with your parents, and then you have children, and we talk about that. So you grew up in Texas. That is correct, in Oak Cliff, which is about 30 miles outside of Dallas. It was as close to a theocracy as exists in the United States. The, 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 the Baptist Church, the Church of Christ, the Nazarene, uh, basically had a, a thing going in Oak Cliff. 
you, you could not buy liquor at all. It was dry. The, the whole town. The whole, the whole place. You had to drive. They told me you had to drive 22 miles to buy a beer. And it was the specificity of the mileage that made me believe they were telling the truth. <laughs> uh, but we grew up where a large percentage of the school population did not dance. You know, it be, because it was against kind of the regs. And I was Jewish. <laughs> oh, how did Jew. that happen? How did that happen? Yeah, that's... So, so there were three Jewish families in all of Oak Cliff. Okay. Three Jewish families. And in fact, there were more, and I'm being literal here, there were more Nazis in Oak Cliff than there were Jews. <laughs> and I mean... I think, I think that's still true, actually. No, no, well, li literal... I was on the sixth, in sixth grade, I was playing basketball on the basketball team, and our, our guard, uh, John Rutledge, invited us over to his house for uh, pimento cheese and uh, Pepsi Cola after one of our many losses. We, we were the losingest team in Oak Cliff. People looked, other teams would come to our gym and they were just licking their lips. I averaged four points a season. Were you the big guy though? You must have been the 6'3 I was the big kid. man. I was the big man. I'm telling you, I was afraid to be under the basket. I was afraid to get elbowed. I was not a good basketball player. <laughs> so anyway, we walk over to John's house and there in his living room is a bust of Adolf Hitler. A bus. That's not, no, that's not real. No, it's real. And I'm talking now for, for the for the podcast listening audience, I am gesturing with my hand of about 18 inches high. So a bust of Adolf Hitler about 18 inches high with German flags coming out of the wall on either side of Hitler. And on the coffee table in front of the fireplace were stormtrooper magazines kind of laid out like highlights magazines in a pediatrician's office. And I found something... And this is in the fifth, fifth, 50s or early 60s. Well, well, let me... I'm 12 years old. 62. Yeah, 62 or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Before the Beatles. Uh, Hitler was huge before the Beatles. Yeah. When the Beatles, they kind of <laughs> right. they dissipated. They knocked little. Hitler off the charts. It's such an odd era to go, you know what? Maybe Hitler was right. <laughs> That's such a weird time to yeah. go like... Mm. It was. So, so growing up, there was a great deal of pressure. You know, I felt both that it's funny about human nature. I, I not only wanted to be like everyone else, and I didn't want to have a name like Stephen Tobolowsky. I want a name like Stephen Adams, yeah, someone who could get work and not be punished by Nazis That's in it. school. So I wanted to be someone who did not stand out. Yet at the same time, the conflict made me want to embrace my differentness. It made me want to embrace Judaism more than I normally would have. And uh, when we grew up, uh, we exchanged presents on December 25th sure. and not on Hanukkah. You know, we, my mother and father didn't want us to be outcasts at the first show and tell after we got back from Christmas. Did you go to synagogue every week? Were you, I mean, were you I, how long really? was that drive? Wow. That drive <laughs> was 22 miles. It was past the beer. It was 30 miles and I started going to synagogue when I was six, and I went until the end of high school. And from junior high and high school, I went twice a week. Oh, so, so it was a big drive. Right. And my mom drove me all the time, every time, never complained, never said anything. And we used to listen to news on the way over there. We listened to the Perry Como channel on the radio. And uh, I... I just remember, it's impossible, and, and it's impossible, and, and it was news all the time, and it made me feel so grown up to wear a suit and a tie and listen to the news on the radio going over to the temple. It made me feel like I was doing the right thing on the right path, and then afterwards we went over to our grandfather's house and hung out there before we drove back. So your, your family was there. What what brought them to that area? It seems like an odd place for a family of Jewish people to go, you know what? This is home. Let's yeah, there, there is an apocryphal story that uh, my grandfather, who came from Poland or Russia, we're not exactly sure where, we're thinking maybe Poland now, his, his area of, what is it, embarkation where you come into the country, sure. was not Ellis Island. But he came in through Galveston. I was going to say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Galveston. And so that's just naturally where he landed. Well, well, he chose to land there because it turned out that there were a group of Tobolowskis and Skybells, like uh, his 
wife's name was Lena Skybell. That Skybell family also came through Galveston. So there was the talk among the Tobolowskis and Skybells was there something happening in Texas. We should start a little enclave there. And as well, there's some stuff happening in Texas. Oh, wait, yeah. Oh, yeah, there's some, there's some shit going down in Texas. So sure. your grandfather started the resistance. Yeah. In, <laughs> there's in, Hitler statues <laughs> in Texas. The story was, the apocryphal tale was, he comes to the guy in Galveston, and the, the guard there, the officer, says, who are you? Well, grandfather, who didn't speak the English, thought the who, in German, wo, means where. Uh, so he only understood like Yiddish, Hebrew, and that kind of stuff. So he thought the guard was saying, where are you from? And so he answered, I'm Abram from Tobolsk, which is a town in Russia. And, and, but he said it in his sort of Hebraic way to where the guard didn't understand him and thought, oh, you're Abram Tobolowsky. And so I got my name the same way Don Corleone yeah, got exactly. his name. Exactly. It's actually pretty He's common. However... I do feel that this story may not be true, and even though, how, how would I love to be named the same way Don Corley? I'm going to stick with it. But, That's great. But my brother's kid, uh, Andrew, was working for a law office, I think, uh, in Dallas as a summer job, and he came across this old uh, newspaper article from 1888 about the Tobolowsky family uh, in Plano, Texas. And so the Tobolowskis were actually in Texas, in the Dallas area, before grandfather came over and got the name Tobolowsky, a la uh, Don Corleone. But my wife Maybe said, they were from the same town, and the same thing happened to them. Well, the, well they were, yes, ex that's my wife's explanation. Yeah. She said both explanations can be true, yeah. that he got his name that way, and there were Tobolowskis there before him. Do you know of any other name that he had? No. Just grandfather. Isn't that funny? Adams. We talk about this. <laughs> I, you know, we're in, in three generations, we're all forgotten. Because my great-great-grandparents, my grandparents were all gone before I was around, and so I don't know any of their backstories. My brother's kind of going down the history.com or whatever, and like driving to sites and graveyards in Maine and trying to piece it together, but I'm like, I don't, I couldn't name all my great-great-grandparents. Now, per, per this podcast, and per what you have just said, in the Talmud, right? Yeah. Do we know what the Talmud is? Well, the listening. I'm an Irish Catholic, <laughs> yeah. and I'm barely at barely that. So, it's, so it's the it's the book where you, everyone puts their uh, their no their Omar Omar let, uh, let us handle the Jewish stuff. Wait, <laughs> they open the books and then you're in, and that's how it works. In, that was a problem. In Judaism, the number one holiest writing is, of course, the Bible or the Torah, the first five books of Moses. That's number one. Number two on the list is the Talmud. 71 volumes of interpretation of the oral law that was written down. Anyway, in this 71 volumes, uh, which has a lot of wisdom and a lot of stuff that you just can't understand at all, one of the things it says is that it is important for the survival of a culture, drumroll, for an idea to be kept alive for two generations. That an idea, the wise men of 2,000 years ago said, that the wisdom of a grandparent teaching a child yes. an idea is the most important form of education that there is for a child because the survival of an idea for two generations is what it takes for a, for a culture, for a people to survive. So what you are saying is very, very important in terms of parents teaching kids yeah. and grandparents teaching grandchildren ideas and lessons. And... And so, yes, you know, growing up, well, I didn't get a whole lot of lessons from my grandparents, except, except I got a lot, okay, this counts as a lesson. I got unconditional love. Unconditional See, that's love. that's a great lesson. But to what you say about grandparents teaching, here's the problem with that, is then Rotlich's grandfather, who's got the bust of Hitler is passing that on to his grandkids. Oh, yeah. So it's good or bad. Sometimes or you should not. just clean the slate and go, listen, don't you shouldn't pass any lessons on in certain families because you're like people kids are kids are taught what people teach them. So when you teach them hate, then all of a sudden that's what they grow up with. Like here here's like some important lessons I learned when I was a child. Uh, 
I was probably six or seven years old. Our area in Oak Cliff, needless to say, was a white flight area. Do you know what that means? Do you know uh, what that phrase means? I, know, I, I'm gonna, I would take a guess, but I don't know. What it means is that very legally what they did is they made it very difficult for black people to live in Oak Cliff. Not, not in any overt way, but it was basically an area that was all white. So you would think that... Although this, the Hitler statue is a little overt. Uh, that's a little that's overt. A tad, hey, bring over the Tobolowski kid. I guess I'm going to show him. You know, like our family was the other side of the Hitler's. We were just a regular loving family. We were family. on the nice side of the We are on the nice side of the, of the white supremacy kind of uh, spectrum. So the thing is, you would think that this is a tradition that was handed down via white supremacy of saying there aren't going to be any blacks living in our community. But it had au contraire. The lesson was very different because I grew up not knowing any black people. I knew three. There was our maid, Lenora. There was uh, Alice Nell's maid down the street, Claudie, and my father's custodian, Thomas. These three people, to this day, have been the kindest, wisest, most successful people, most courageous people I ever knew in my life. So this idea, a lesson of two generations that was born of white supremacy, with me growing up in that culture, the bullies, the bad guys, the idiots, everyone I knew was white. Right. Everyone was white. It was, everybody was white except for these three people, which were the greatest people I knew. So I grew up thinking black people were superior. And through my life, let me talk a little bit about Lenora, our maid, Lenora. Lenora taught me so many things in life with wisdom, with kindness. She was a maid. I don't know what her educational level was, but she worked hard, and she ended up uh, an, uh, working her way up through Avon products that used to sell door-to-door. -door. She became a multi-millionaire. That's awesome. Lenora came... When when I went to college, she came to my mother and father and says, I want to buy your house and every stick of furniture in it. And mom and dad said, sure. They were, they're going to move to closer to me on the other side of town anyway. They said, sure. And she, she says, in my life, I always wanted to own the house that I had to work in. I went to visit Lenora uh, about a year ago. She's still living in my home with my childhood furniture in the home. And she told me, Stevie, Lenora now owns 22 properties. Mm -hmm. She owns apartment buildings, businesses, all sorts of things. She's enormously successful. She turned our house into a church. Our original home, my childhood home, with the original furniture. And I came in and gave her a hug and a kiss. Such a dear woman, her husband, James, just magnificent. And she's Stevie you'd be very happy. We have saved a lot of souls in this house. That's awesome. And I think, okay, there is a lesson of two generations yeah. that you would not expect. And all being born of the culture that gave us John Rutledge and the bust of Adolf Hitler. Yeah. But there's another side to that too, which is ultimately why, and I believe this with all my heart, from the lessons I learned from my childhood, uh, that's in the Bible, it's in the Torah, it's in the Talmud, it's in everything that we were taught in Sunday school, is that there's a lot of bad. There's uh, the minions of evil are everywhere, but the good is so much more powerful yeah. that if you could cling to one bit of good, it's like kryptonite, man, and it makes all the evil supermen just vanish. The problem is the bad gets higher ratings. It's the lead. The bad? Oh, hey, you... I'm the telling. one story, and you're like, you can't, it leads the news, and it's, it's fear-mongering, and people latch on, because you can't help it. It's like this crazy story. You know, the good always falls to the end of the news. You know, in, in, in Judaism, I'm, I'm, I'm slipping, I'm slipping, I'm slipping and sliding into, into talking about uh, things that are in my book, and faith, so you could stop me at any time. I'm saying, like, in Judaism, there are three crimes you could commit 
that you are not to be forgiven for. Someone once asked me, what's the big difference between Judaism and Christianity? In Christianity, you see people forgiving people all the time for everything. everything. Like, you know, someone walks into a church and murders people, and someone who doesn't even know the people forgives the murder. You know, like, Judaism, don't play. <laughs> homie, homie, don't play by those rules. <laughs> there uh, that yeah. we, the, in Judaism, the three crimes that you cannot be forgiven for, believe it or not, one is, of course, murder. Another one is uh, adultery. And the third one is gossip. And the reason is because to be forgiven for something, you have to be able to make restitution. You have to make it right. You cannot replace a life. You cannot replace a family that you destroy with adultery. And you cannot replace a reputation. So those are three things. And what is that? That's the evening news. It's all the evening news. That's, that's, that's every show that's on television. That's it. Show. Bachelor in Paradise is just going on right now, and that's the lead on everything. It about, lead, yeah. That's the lead of everything. So we, you're right. We lead. We lead. It's all clickbait, and all, all three of those things you just talked about are the first story people are going to click on, <laughs> and then they get so many likes that all of a sudden they start to reap the benefits of advertising money because they are using those. Yes. So that is kind of the upbringing I had. Yeah. And I have to say, you know, I grew up in a family of enormous love. I grew up in a family where education was the key, like get educated, uh, get a job whenever, whenever you can. I got my first job when I was like 13 with my Uncle Jaime working at his clothing store. Sure. It, it was important to get a job. It was important to be a grown-up and not extending childhood longer than you have to. And so I was very which proud. Which is funny because you, you became an actor, which is basically... <laughs> the opposite. It's, the, it's basically saying I'm going to be a child for the rest of my life. For the rest of my life. Oh, boy. My parents didn't like that. Talk about your dad a little bit. What, what did he do for a living? My dad uh, was a uh, pediatrician. And I, I still... He's 95. He's still with us. And uh, I still get Facebook posts of people who were... Dr. Dave's patients when they were little kids and, and how they loved Dr. Dave. So that town, they were like, uh, yeah, we, we like Hitler, but you know what? We do need a doctor. <laughs> All right, how about the Jewish guy? Get the Jewish get guy. The Jewish he's, guy. Here. he's okay. He can be the doctor. Now, one interesting... You can't join the country club. Those are your two things. <laughs> well, that's true. We couldn't. You couldn't join the country You could not. You're right. We couldn't. Uh, in fact, at the Dallas Country Club, they had a famous sign, no Jews or dogs allowed. At the Dallas Country Club. <laughs> at least you got top billing over the dogs. I'm Irish. We still have the signs my father saved in our house from when he was a kid that said, no, Irish need not apply. You're not hiring Irish in Boston. Here. So that's why they became the cops and the drunks, basically. Yeah. Um, uh, an interesting thing about my father. Very, it, it, were you ever a wrestling fan? I mean, I know wrestling, but no. You know wrestling. Okay. In Dallas, you know, they had wrestling at the Sportatorium. Sure. And one of the wrestlers, and I'm not sure if it was Swede Carlson or, or one <laughs> Bull, gorgeous Rick Bull Curry, one of the big wrestlers, uh, he was passing through town, and he ended up going to my father. Uh, he had a cold or a sore throat or needed a shot or something. Came to Dad, and he spread the word to all the wrestlers, go to Dr. Dave. And so Dr. Dave, my father, became wrestling doctor. And it is so funny. We would, we would Occasionally, it was a big treat for us kids to go downtown to Sportatorium to watch the matches. And as we would leave, you know, maybe one of the wrestlers go, Dr. Dave! And we were a celebrity uh, uh, there. My dad is so straight-laced, you know, never, but he was wrestling doctor. And my mother... Met that she was a nurse when they met, and then she was her avocation was to be a mother, and she loved that job more than anything else. Taking care of us kids, driving me to piano lessons. She drive me to piano lesson and sit in the car until my thirty minute lesson was over, reading a book, and then she would drive home. My mother was an avid reader. She loved reading everything, and when we began to notice her slipping. She was probably in her seven, maybe late 60s, early 70s, and I came home for a visit, and she didn't have a book. And I go, Mom, what's your book? And she goes, Stephen, 
I can't remember the I can't remember the characters anymore, and I can't remember the plot. And if you can't remember the story, what's the point? And my mother ended up with Alzheimer's, and she passed away at the age of eighty. Uh, way too young, but maybe not too young because of her affliction of a heart heart condition, mm -hmm. and it devastated our family. Even though we saw it coming. Uh, we had one horrible moment when mom, dad began to lose his eyes. He's blind now. Can't walk now. He began to lose his eyes, and, and the whole point was he needed mom there to be his eyes, and she needed him to be her mind. Mm -hmm. And so the two of them ended up forming this partnership, and she did all the driving, even though she had Alzheimer's disease. And so there was, and, and, and dad didn't want to do anything because it represented his freedom. Right. If, if, if you took the car away from mom, he was stuck because he couldn't get anything. She was, he couldn't drive at all. So we, there was one horrible, horrible, horrible thing where mom went to the store and did not come home. And there were the phone calls. Uh, long distance. Where is she? What is she? she came in about four hours later. Obviously had been crying. Obviously was distraught. She didn't know what had happened to her, but she found her way home. And we have another family meeting, and we had a serious discussion about taking her to the vet and having her implanted with a chip. So we, for, for real. Yes. So we wouldn't I lose think I her. I that with my kids. Yeah, well, sure. they do that now. They for do, sure, right? they, they do. They they put chips in everybody. Yeah. Uh, but but so lost my mother, and uh, that's kind of upbringing in the family. Yeah. No, I get that. I just my, my mom made it to ninety two. We just went home two weekends ago for the funeral. But we always felt lucky because she didn't. Uh, it was very quick. It was a stroke. She lasted a couple of days, but she never lost her mind. And I have friends who've lost family to Alzheimer's, and it's. You know, it's just, it's just, you think it's going to get better. It never gets better, and then it's... it's I, I, I had a great rabbi, uh, one of the first rabbis when I came back to Judaism in my 40s after I finished with the orgies and the cocaine and all no, we'll that stuff. That. We well, haven't let's, got to, let's, let's go we back. talk about some of that. Let's, let's, let's go back to Judaism. And he said, uh, <laughs> he said, it's a mistake, it's a temptation, but it's a mistake to always talk about the end of someone's life. Mm -hmm because it's going to be a sad story. It's going to be a tragic story. They never end with us, <laughs> no. but, but they are not representative. They are not representative, and that's why you see now, uh, like my dear friend Powers Booth yeah. just passed away, we're going to the celebration of life of Powers this coming week, this whole thing of the celebration of his life. Uh, this is a new phrase that's becoming very common. The, as people consciously try to focus on, let's talk about the part of their life, not at the end. Right. And and that's an important thing to do. Back to the, the orgies and the coke. And yeah, the crazy. The yeah, those are the years. I mean, those are the years you want to talk about. Uh, yes. You, well, well, at least they were amusing, and you survived them. That's the that's the main thing. That's right? the main. I thing. think back to all the times I've, I should have never survived that. Yes. Well, kind of yeah, yeah, that was yeah. a terrible thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, so, how many siblings are there? I have an older brother and a younger sister. Okay. Older brother still in Dallas, and he had the fortune misfortune of being a doctor, uh, which means he gets the heavy lifting when it comes to dad now. He lives pretty much across yeah. the street from dad, and he's taken dad to every doctor appointment and getting his prescriptions and doing that. He'll either get a high place in heaven or has earned a low rung of hell. I don't know which it is, but that's, that's what he's doing. And my yeah. sister Barbara moved back to the Dallas area. She lived, She's a, I guess, uh, professor, tenured professor, PhD at uh, University of Dallas at Arlington now. Were you always a performer as a kid? In yes. high school and stuff, you knew from day one I wanted to ask day what I wanted to do. one. Your father, was he, and he had a doctor, and then you, was he like, what are you doing? Yes. It was like, you have to be a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> no, you... Not even like maybe maybe lawyering. He was like, no, you have to. No, yeah, yeah. This and so I told mom and dad that when I went to SMU, that I was majoring in pre-law, 
a lie. It was one of the first lies I told, but it wasn't a real lie because at SMU, the pre-law category was so loosey-goosey. You could pretty much sleep all day, get a submarine sandwich, and be a major in pre-law. Well, that's the Animal House joke. He goes, pre-law? I thought you were a pre-med. He goes, what's the difference? Yeah, the same, right. It's the same thing. It's the first two years are all the same. Any, yeah, exactly. If you took an English class, if you took a math class, and at SMU, you had to take a religion class, uh, which was, you had to read the New Testament, I believe. Uh, you, if you did those things, you were in pre-law. Were your parents paying for school? Yes. How much do you think school costs back then? SMU, Southern Methodist University, a semester. Well, I'm going to guess it was like $800. Yeah, 700 Yeah, right. 700 Because you were in-state. Did that help or did no, it? No, it didn't help. It's a private now. institution, but it's $700. And I was in the dorm, which was another $700. So For the whole semester, it was 1400 bucks. Yeah. Yeah. And and so when you consider what college costs nowadays, stupid. they say that one of the greatest increases not only is in the price of automobiles, but number one is price of, of college. Not even close. When I went to school, I went to Boston University, and it was the fourth most expensive college in the country at the time. I was a Navy ROTC, and they paid for it, so I just chose the most expensive school I could get into. It was like 26000 And at that time in the 80s, everyone was like, oh, my God, that's ridiculous. And now it's like $65,000. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, it's got to stop because kids are starting their lives in incredible debt. It's not, and they're, they're never going to be able to get out of it. It's amazing. Yeah. And uh, I have a, uh, my youngest son now who is 22. My youngest boy is 22. And he just finished his first year at Johns Hopkins Medical School. Where, thank you. Wait, wait, you wait, I, wait, hold it. I'm hearing the audience out there. Yes, thank you. Thank you very much. Yes, thank you. And we, it was, it was all us. In the uh, package they send you, uh, do you remember like in college? Well, I'm so significantly older than you, but what you would used to get from college is about classes that they taught. And they'd have pictures of instructors in classrooms, and they would have a list of uh, various courses you could take in, in different categories. Now, it's, it's plans of uh, tuition aid, you know, loans, student loans. And you get these whole financial packages. Do you want package A? And they don't talk about classes. And Johns Hopkins considers it a win that your child will not leave with over $90,000 of debt. That's, they're considering that, they said that they've orchestrated this to where they get out, that you won't have more than $100,000 worth of debt if you play your cards right. And of course, they manage the loans now. So they have a financial, but all the schools. They're making, that's how they make their money. All the schools. They're basically loaning institutions that are also, we'll, we'll run a school on the side. And, and, uh, and this isn't to put anything on Johns Hopkins, everybody does it. And they also coordinate that with the scheduling and where it's almost impossible to finish in four years now. They, they, you, you're able to do it, but what they do is they make the class in first year English or what, whatever class that you need to get, they make it 7 a.m. Monday morning. Right. So the only Nobody way they could it. do it, no one takes a it. Freshman year, you're not touching that class. So you either have to take yeah. it in the summer or you have to take it the fifth year and it brings well, yeah. that, that much more debt. So my goal as an actor on one day at a time is to try to make sure that my son William does not end up with $90,000 in debt. That is the goal of my life. The goal of my life is to work in such a way that that burden will not be on my son. So he gets a clean slate. But of course, you, he tells you he's doing pre-med, but you know how that works out. That kid's probably acting, he's in New York, he's he, sculpture maybe, who knows what he's doing. He's, he, both of my kids, my older son Robert is just about 28. He's getting his doctorate at UCLA in organic chemistry. Both William and Robert acted when they were young. And then they said, Dad, this is we, the worst business ever. They, this is crazy. They, they said, we've seen your life, Dad, and we don't want to turn out That's like hilarious. You. And you're the anomaly. You're the, I mean, you're the one guy who's worked more than anybody I know. And they hate it. 
and they go like you're a failure. You know, I'm the one guy. I, nobody's I, nobody's has as many credits. It's crazy the amount of jobs you've done. And they said, we see how hard it is. It's and hard. How awful it is. Yeah. And we want no part of that. We want to be scientists. So William and Robert went <laughs> the to smart kids. Yeah, smart, you got smart kids, man. Yeah, and and my older son Robert is uh, quite gifted, and. <laughs> And he's he's good at video games too, but he uh, they man for all you parents out there, there will be a time maybe if you're lucky when the school will say we want your kids so bad we're going to give them a scholarship, like UCLA gave my son a scholarship for his master's and doctorate and a stipend of twenty five grand a year. I felt like the money truck parked in front of my house and started dumping pounds of money on my head instead of paying for college and high school that I've been doing for years and years and years and years going in debt. Now, one of my kids is getting money dumped on his what head. Is, what is expected of him for that? He does research, and he has already uh, brought forth a patentable I don't know what you call it, an experiment in organic chemistry. Now, he's no weed. weed. Definitely something Definitely like weed. weed. He, he is not, what he did is he looked at he looked at a list of chemical reactions that are used in industry that are expensive. And he looked at these specifically and said, okay, how can we do this chemical reaction for less money? Because they will buy that. And so there was one reaction that used palladium as a uh, some sort of, uh, I don't know what the word is, that mixes the chemicals together, that it creates the, the reaction. So he found a way to do it with nickel, which is really super cheap. And, and it worked. So That's crazy. So, it used, That's and, crazy. And, you know, so he's going down the hit list of like expensive right. things. He says, and now the next thing I'm targeting is, is how to do it without using energy, without heat to do it at room temperature and they'll really pay me for that. So so you know he he doesn't have the pie in the sky. Cold fusion. Cold what, fusion. What movie is that? Where they're like Cold Fusion. Yes. It's every other movie. Right? Every other Steve damn movie. Steve was probably in you, it. Honestly it's one of your credits I think. <laughs> yes, I think. Um, so let me get let, let go back to college because you you're straight laced through through high school. You don't even drink probably. There's no, no alcohol in town. No alcohol. First, I had my first beer when I was nineteen. In college, yeah, yeah. So you tell your you tell your dad I'm doing pre law. Yep. When what day does it happen where you're like, oh, by the way, I'm in a play and it's I'm not pre law. Well, I think that was probably sophomore year, and it was around the same time that I'd fallen in love and said I had a girlfriend. So it was the double shotgun whammy of like, uh, <laughs> I not only in the near future want to have sex. I was a virgin at the time. You know, I'm in college. I'm a virgin. And, and there were a lot of us. There. Yeah, from you know, that town, that era, makes it, sense. It, it was the Woodstock era, but all those kids came from North Dallas. If you came from South Dallas, where I came from, no, you're a virgin. So, <laughs> Girls so, just wouldn't put out. They probably did, but not for me. Not for you in high school. Uh, no. So I, uh, it was the double whammy of I'm in love and I'm an actor. <laughs> and so, you know, it was, it, was, it was not good. Which one did you lead with? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they, mom and dad got the idea that I had a girlfriend when I brought her over for dinner or whatever. And, and they were not was warm she, to the idea. Were you already having Jewish? sex at this point? No, 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 no. Because when you say, when I say girlfriend, it infers that sex has been happening. It's already happened. We, we had held hands. Did you held hands and, and noodles? It's close enough. Noodle? And oh, let right. me tell you, the earth moved. And, and we used to play, the earth moving. we used to do these uh, role-playing games uh, in her dorm room uh, that would be like uh, Japanese Japanese tea garden whore meets American <laughs> sailor on leave. And even though we have American sailor on leave and Japanese whore, uh, there was no sense involved. She would just dress in pajamas. That's not a Japanese whore. That's, Japanese whore makes the sex with a Japanese whore. No, but it's like, and she would talk and pick Japanese. Oh, people. You know, and, that was and, a little and, Mickey Rooney from Breakfast at and, Tiffany's. And she would make tea in her room, and I was sitting there, and then we would like make out. But 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 there was but there was no SEX as it is known on cable television these days. But 
That How long do you date a girl in college without having sex? Well, this is a different time. It's a little, it's the 60s. Yeah, this is the part I was trying to get to. This is like 69. 70s. For me, for me, I was 21. Yeah. So it was seventy-two for three years. Before she put out. Wait a minute, back up. She was looking for it and you're yes. like, I, I'm waiting. No, no, this was the deal. Uh, we, we, well, let's go back to, it was my upbringing. Yeah. And that is, I learned about free from the prizes in the Cracker Jack box uh, when I was in Oak Cliff. And I know free weren't worth nothing. And I wanted something important like sex to matter a lot. Mm -hmm. And if you were, I realized that I was in a culture, the Woodstock culture, in which a lot of important things were not treated as being important. And I had an instinctive idea that sex was very important, and I wanted it to be more than recreation. And I understood that life was important, and the Vietnam War was raging, and they were picking names out of a hat to send us guys over to Vietnam to die. And so we're, I'm looking at this world that's falling apart at the time, and I wanted, if we, I was in love, and I wanted it if we had sex, for it to mean something. And so I waited until it did, till it wasn't just like, oh, we're drunk and it's Saturday night, let's do this. I, I waited until, like, it was a union of souls. And Did you guys get married? No, but we lived together for 16, 17 years. Oh, okay. What do you attribute having that kind of consciousness at that time in your life? Because most kids, yeah. 1920... They're like, let's was, go get drunk and, and have and sex. trying to get rid of it as it, fast as humanly possible. It was, it was, it's very difficult to argue with an erection. Yeah, erection. It's impossible. Uh, an erection. I've never argued with mine, almost, Steve. Every, every argument, argument. Every argument. That's, you know, and, and it does create a, a conflict. And I, I look at it, the same thing's true, I, I'm jumping subjects, same thing's true with marijuana. Sure. You know, I had my first marijuana when I was in... My first graduate time. school, graduate school, I was like 25 <laughs> years old, first time I had a, a hit of marijuana. You know, it was very late in the uh, drug addiction scheme before right. I went that whole process. And I, I talked to my son. I remember I was, I think it was my 50th birthday, and I was talking to my eldest son who enjoyed the marijuana quite a bit. The doctor? No. The uh, organic chemist. Oh, he's the chemist. Yeah. He yeah. could probably. Oh. He could and I wasn't, I wasn't bad when I said, no, me, organic yeah. chemistry. He's, yeah. he's going to make a new strain. And I said, let me just say this. At the age of 50, I don't regret uh, not having enough weed in my life. I, I don't regret that at all. I said, what I regret at the age of 50 are the books I haven't read, are the concerts I haven't gone to are the friendships I haven't maintained. But I gotta tell you, I don't miss one drunk. I don't miss one night of getting so stoned that I don't know what I'm doing. I don't miss any of that. Mm -hmm. That was always a diversion, it was always a mistake. Or not a mistake, I mean I had some fun times, but as I look back and I'm glad I didn't waste any more time than I did. So in a, I took things seriously. I took education seriously and I took love seriously, and I took life seriously. And I wanted all those things to count. And so I didn't pretend like they were a waste of time. I paid attention in class. When I fell in love, it was the real thing. And I honored life wherever I found it. And I don't regret it. And, and I try to pass those ideas onto my children. And I think I've been somewhat successful in that. You, you know, but again, you can't argue with an erection. That, that well, I mean, did you finally, I'm just, I, I'm wondering on the day that you finally were like, today is the day, it's been three years, baby, let's, it was going to happen. It was, because we had talked about it a great deal, and I said, let's, let's. I bet it was the only topic of discussion for a long time. It was, <laughs> and it was a, it was a topic of heartbreak, because she was, she was like, I want this now. I want to do this now. I want, you know, my life as a virgin to be over now. And I want it to be more than just an experience. So she, you both were virgins? 
Yes. Yeah. And and so, you know, we we made it one afternoon in her apartment, and uh, I remember the sun was coming through, and it was. And at a certain time of year in Texas, the sun gets really orange, and it was like lowering and coming through those blinds and curtains. And she was lying on the bed and playing with the the curtain, the white curtain, and she started quoting King Lear, blow winds, crack your cheeks, rage, how blow, and uh, doing her best King Lear. And, and of course, from then on, what what's the old joke? It was honor and offer all night. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say what. I, what, I, what's I offer my honor. What, what what do you say? I offer my honor, and then you say I honor your offer, and then it's honor and offer all night. So <laughs> I've never heard that. Do you know it, Andy? It's an old Jewish joke. Ah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, but, not, but, it's not one of the Irish Catholic limericks my father used to do. Again, you know, I could say, okay, we we waited for me three years, for her two years, or we waited three years. Uh, before, you know, we had sex, but at the same time, we made it for 16 years. So, you know, the it balanced out. You weren't like, oh my God, why didn't we do this two and a half years ago? This is crazy. I could have had a lot of sex. Right. Yes. And, and, uh, Especially in plays. She was an actor as well, it sounds Yes. Like. And so you guys were doing plays together. There's nothing more sexy than... And that culture, you're in drama school. Yeah. I mean... Oh, yeah. That's why you take acting classes. Not to become an actor. You take them to meet girls and have sex. I think you're saying get laid. Yeah, get laid. And it was also the first time I really saw gay people in my life. I'm sure they existed in my high school. Yeah, me too. But, but, you know, they were kind of... It was kind of underground. It was forbidden. It was something that didn't happen. Well, if you're not allowed to dance, pretty sure people are not going to be too happy. (laughs) Listen, right. I'm not dancing, but I'm really kidding. Right. And, and at, you know, in college, I was aware, oh, my God, like all these guys, yeah. mainly guys, you go like, oh, they're, they're gay. And all oh, these women are gay. Oh, my gosh, I didn't even know this existed yeah. in the world. So th- there was an explosion of sexuality when you go to college that's pretty overwhelming. Well, especially at that time. It, yeah. It was, oh, yeah. They were Woodstock. making a point about it. Woodstock. What's the pill out then? What's the... It just, just came out it around that time. Out. And it, it, it was, it changed everything. It, in Texas, I want to say in the whole state of Texas, I think it's true. Google this, and if I'm wrong, I'm sorry. But uh, abortion was against the law in Texas. I feel so, like it still is. <laughs> no, no. But but it's difficult in some places. Oh, You're all right. It's yeah, difficult. It's, you have to go to different states, I yeah. think, at some point. Well, well. Back then, you definitely had to go to different states. Yeah. You had to go to New Mexico. Yeah. If you got pregnant, a woman had to go to New Mexico on the bus to get an abortion. And it was unsafe? It was in some weird... No, it wasn't okay. unsafe. It wasn't unsafe like... It was bad enough just going to New Mexico. Right. But... Uh, <laughs> I mean, still today, I'm, still, I'm not going anywhere near that. No, stuff. no, no. Uh, but it, Breaking Bad's New Mexico. We know what we, happens in New Mexico. And, uh, boy, I did uh, Wild Hogs in New Mexico, in uh, Madrid, New Mexico, outside of Santa Fe. That was something I, John Travolta had, even in, in Madrid, New Mexico, had rabid fans. John Travolta. He's John Travolta. One of the greatest guys. Yeah. I mean, one of the greatest guys, just as a person, you know, sitting there telling me stories from his past, telling me stories from, you know, uh, staying alive, staying alive, yeah. you know, Saturday Night, Night Fever, and Grace. Oh, just, and people, it was, I'm thinking, they had a guy in the crew with one of these little thermometers that's like a gun, and you point it at the ground and pull the trigger, and it tells how hot it is. Mm-hmm. It was 128 degrees. 128 degrees off the concrete in Madrid, and they're screaming for John Travolta outside the set in this little town. John runs out there in the 128 degrees, jumps on the top of his motorcycle, stands on the seat, stands on the seat of his motorcycle, and sings a song from Greece for all those people. And they screamed, and then he signed all the autographs on the heat. It's pretty cool. Pretty cool guy. Yeah. Uh, that's Madrid. So... If, if you got pregnant, you had to go to New Mexico. And my girlfriend's friend and roommate 
did have to make that journey. And it was terrifying. And uh, my parents were very aware at a certain point that I was having sex. And this was disturbing for my parents. And I remember I had a... In their early 20s? I mean, they, they, they were just that naive that they didn't know with what was going on in the Well, we weren't kids married. Parents. It was a big deal that you're having sex and you're not married. I get it, but... That it, it leads to shame. It is from their lesson of two generations right. that that is something that you just didn't do, that it leads to bad stuff. It leads to taking the bus to New Mexico, sure. or it leads to shame, or... And shame is something that we have eliminated from our society, obviously. Uh, but shame was a big motivator for our parents. And I remember my mother was saying, uh, I don't like what's happening between you and Beth. I don't like it at all. And I sat, I sat her down and I go, Mom, I love her. And I know you love me. And I'm going to continue my life and be with her. And if you want to see me again, you will be nice to her. You will respect her, not be nasty, or I won't come here anymore. Was she, was she mean to her? Uh, you, you know the way parents can be. Kurt. Just, be yeah. And it was a good conversation. It wasn't a mean conversation. Whenever I see conversations with children and parents fighting on TV, I go, bullshit. You know, because real conversations can be real when you're, reach a certain point of adulthood, like in your 20s, go, this is what it is. I'm in love with this person. I'm not giving her up so I could stay at home, so I could live at home with a TV in my room. <laughs> my life is with her. And it all changed when my girlfriend became famous. She ended up winning the Pulitzer Prize, ended up being nominated for uh, a Tony Award, Academy Award for Best Screenplay, and my parents loved <laughs> and uh, adored her and uh, it made it difficult when our relationship ended uh, my relationship with Beth ended and then I fell in love with my uh, current wife, my only wife, the one and only Anne, who's the woman who saved my life three times I'm like a damn dog man you know, you saved my life once, I'm going to come back for food, but she saved my life three times all right, we're gonna we're gonna get to that. All right, juicy uh, tease for the next episode. Yeah, you can't help it. Uh, Stephen's gonna go. This this is gonna be a two parter, and um, I hope you guys will stick around and uh, and come check out the next episode. Where I, apparently we're gonna find out that three times she saved your life, and then we're gonna talk about your whole career and how you finally left uh, SMU, headed for Hollywood, and did uh, two hundred and fifty four different credits. All right, thanks for joining us today, and uh, be sure to look for part two with Stephen Tabolowski here on Father Time. If you're enjoying the Father Time podcast, then please be sure to go to iTunes and rate and review us if you would. It really helps. And if you haven't enjoyed it, well, I can't help you. I don't know what else I can do. All right. See you next time here on Father Time.